My name is Chris. I'm a resourcing minister here at Foothill. And today's scripture is going to be found in Colossians 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right. Um, we get started on Colossians today. Before we do, uh, I remember, I think I was in junior high when I saw my first Shakespeare play. And I, I, as I, it's, um, you know, that's what all junior high boys want to do is go see a Shakespeare play. But I had a buddy of mine. Uh, we were both junior high. His name was also Chris. And he was my best friend. And his parents used to take him each year to see uh, another Shakespeare play and kind of try to grow him and culture him and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, and I, I, I remember he gave me this great advice. He's like, hey, here's what my parents do. Because otherwise, if you don't do this, it's going to feel like you're listening to gibberish. You're not going to have any idea what's going on. And so uh, my parents give me like a summary of what's happening in Hamlet or Macbeth or whatever. And, and then I can sort of follow the story, right? And it's like great advice. So I did that. And sure enough, you know, but, and, and maybe you've had this experience. I don't know if you've ever been to the opera, but I mean, the opera in Italian and German, and it's like you look at it and go, well, those are beautiful costumes and a lovely stage, but I don't know anything that's going on. It seems like that guy loves that girl and that other guy's not having it and wants to kill that guy, but that's pretty much the only contour I can get out of this, right? So you're, you're left lost unless somebody hands you some sort of summary that helps you uh, make your way and understand the contours of the story. Well, I'm afraid this can happen when we read our Bibles, right? Listen, I, I'm all for you and me sitting down in the morning, I told you, me with my cup of coffee, just reading scripture. That's a really good thing, a wonderful discipline. We just went through a spiritual disciplines series, and part of that was to encourage you to do that. But there's also some help in having some kind of overview that helps us get our bearings of sort of what are the major things that are, will, will help us understand a book of the Bible. So the way I want to start this morning is I'll get to verses one, uh, chapter one, verses one through eight uh, in a moment. But I want, to, I want to kind of introduce the book of Colossians, and this is going to be 30,000 foot level, okay? I'm not, we're not getting down into the details. All that's going to come out in the weeks to come. But I want to try to help you understand some of the contours, the why, the who, all those sort of stuff behind it uh, before we dive in. Okay, so let's start with kind of maybe the, the most obvious, and that is who wrote Colossians. There's been a lot of ink spilled about this over the years. It seems to, tends to be critical scholars who, you know, well, we're not sure if it's Paul. Well, I'm going to take Scripture at its word and say it's Paul, right? We, we read that in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So it's Paul. It's the apostle Paul, right? And, and, uh, and notice by by the way, if you're not familiar with this, ancient letters were written differently than we might write them today, right? If I'm going to write a letter to a friend, I'm going to, you know, dear Chris, and write the letter, and sincerely, Chris, something like that, right? Uh, if I was more formal, and, you know, uh, maybe I have letterhead, and letterhead would tell them right up front who it's from, right? It's from this law office, or this company, or this person, from the desk of. That's kind of what's happening in ancient literature. They're telling you, here's who it's from, the body of the letter, 
and then, you know, the, the signing off uh, at the end. So I, I'm taking this to be, it's the apostle, just as it says here in Scripture. He, you can read about Paul if you want to know kind of how he got there. Acts chapter 9 tells you about his conversion story, but this was written uh, by the, the same apostle who wrote most of your New Testament. Okay, that's the first thing. Who, who wrote it? Paul the apostle. Second of all, where is he? Now, this is important for you to have in the back of your mind. Paul's going to mention it a couple of times in chapter 4, but specifically, Paul is in a Roman jail, a Roman prison cell. Okay, now, uh, don't, don't think when you, you know, like a, a, a big iron gate and a bed inside and a metal toilet and sink, right, the way we think of prison cells now. This is a dank, dark hole in the ground, perhaps, uh, something they would have called a prison or a jail. Uh, nobody provided for your needs while you're there. If you needed food, your friends had to bring it. If you needed clothing, your friends had to bring it. Uh, it, was, it was just horrible, horrible living circumstances. In fact, we, we find out in 2 Timothy, which is the last Paul, letter Paul wrote before he died, in this Roman prison where he's going to say to Timothy, Timothy, please come before winter. It's getting cold. And he literally says to him, bring my cloak. Bring my cloak. I gave it away to somebody else. Would you please bring it with me just to keep me warm? right? So that's, that's where Paul is. And again, he's going to mention that. And, and just for you to know that as you read the text, for you to go, this is being written by a man, uh, probably by candlelight or maybe dictated to somebody who's listening up above where they can hear him and they're in the sunlight. And he's having to, he's saying all these things in the context of a jail cell. That's where Paul is. Now, who are the Colossians? Who are they? Uh, the Colossians were Christians living in the city of Colossae. Colossae is in modern-day Turkey. Uh, at the time when Paul would have written this, Ephesus would have been over on the western coast, and about 100 miles inland, you'd come to Colossae. Uh, today, Ephesus is not on the coast. It's actually the sediment has filled it in. I think it's about three miles away from the coast. But at the time, this was a coastal city. It was a very metropolitan city, Ephesus was. Paul stayed in Ephesus for three years. And Luke tells us that when, when Paul was there, all who lived in Asia, in the book of Acts, he says this, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. So apparently what happened is here's this metropolis called Ephesus. Paul goes in there. They establish a church. He and Timothy are there. He actually leaves Timothy there for a while. But Paul's there, and he begins teaching and preaching, and he, people are hearing the gospel, right? And so people come to town. It's this sort of highway of civilization. They come, and they hear about Paul, and they hear about the this new teaching, and, and they hear and they're converted. One of those men was, uh, was, was Epaphras. Epaphras hears the gospel. Likely, he is uh, discipled to some extent by the apostle Paul himself, and he's sent back to his native city of Colossae. And it's in Colossae that he preaches the gospel, plants a church, and teaches his people the word of God. It's the duty of a pastor, right? You, you, you preach the gospel in order to plant a church to teach them and grow them in the word of God. So Epaphras has done that. And now, and now Paul is writing to this congregation that he's never visited. As far as we know, Paul never made it to Colossae. 
He simply has been doing ministry there through Epaphras, kind of his envoy, his ambassador there, and then writing this letter. Now, why did Paul write the book of Colossians? And this is important, okay? These are not letters that were found on the side of the road of, you know, friends writing to friends, and oh, we've got these ancient manuscripts. No, no, this was a letter. Every single letter in your New Testament was written with a purpose. And it's important for you to understand to at least sort of have that in the back of your mind, that, that, that everything, every time Paul picks up his pen to write of all the letters that are preserved, he does it with a reason. I want to encourage you. In Galatians or uh, parts of Corinthians, I want to rebuke you. I need to correct some doctrine here. I, I need to strengthen your faith because it's waning, right? There's a purpose. There's always, it's always in response to reports that Paul has heard or, say, in the Corinthians uh, uh, case, he's actually uh, responding to letters that he's received from them. And you'll, you'll sort of see, you say this and I say that. It's this guy, I've gotten your letter and now I'm going to respond to that. Well, Paul's gotten a report back from Epaphras and he's hearing some things. He understands some things that are going on. And so he says that there's some concerns that I want to address with you. And he's concerned with them because there's a couple of things happen. There's outside pressure that is outside of the church. People are looking at the culture. They're looking and there's these pressures from outside to conform. There's these pressures that would say, hey, maybe Christianity isn't worth it. It would be easier to just punt and kind of go back to my lifestyle and back to my, you know, my, my pre-Christian days and not have to worry about all the stuff that I'm dealing with, right? This, this pull away from the church, right? We get that today. There's, there's, uh, there's many of us, right? We feel the pull of the world and, and saying, you know, hey, just, just abandon that. Walk away from that. What you, where, where life is really at is not in the church, not in the kingdom of God, but, but boy, the here and now and all you can, you know, sucking the marrow out of this life. That's what you want to do. And the temptation is for us to punt and walk away. So there's pressure outside, but the most significant pressure in Colossae, and I would suggest the most significant for us, is pressure inside the church. That is that there are teachers who apparently have come to town and they're beginning to teach new things. They're saying this, they're like, okay, you heard from Paul and he told you the gospel, good, as far as that goes, but you need to know more. There are some truths Paul hasn't taught you. There are some, you know, he's taught you the elementary things. We're going to teach you the graduate level stuff. We're, we're going we're gonna to get you out of this, you know, this, this, this infancy, and we're going to take you into this new area. In other words, we're going to teach you that it's not just Christ. It's not Christ alone that you need to know. It's Christ plus something, something else, like Galatians. Some of the similar things are happening in Colossae, that there is, there is you've you got to add to your faith these things you must do. There are certain rituals you must go through. There are certain foods you must eat. There are certain clothes you must wear or not wear. All these kind of things are being added. But in addition to that, even it's not just that it's all this legalism being added to it. Some of it is license being added to it. That is, you know what, abandon that. Don't have to worry about that. Really what you need to worry about is your, is your heart and soul. Don't worry about what happens with your physical body. That comes from, maybe you've heard this word before, there was a belief floating around. In fact, it's still around today. We just don't call it this, called Gnosticism. 
And Gnosticism, it's just a Greek word, G-N-O-S-I-S, Gnosis, which just means knowledge. And they were saying there's a deeper knowledge. And here's, if I were to broad brush Gnosticism, it was this. It's that, it's that they understood that the material world was evil and the spiritual world was good. So if you put, brought that personally, what that would mean is that my soul is the good part of me, my flesh is the bad part of me. But in this sense, that my flesh flesh is utterly irrelevant. And so where that would lead you is to believing it doesn't matter what I do with my body as long as I'm feeding my soul. It doesn't matter that I, you know, uh, sleep with my boyfriend or, or live this kind of lifestyle. None of those things matter because my material body is irrelevant. What matters most is that I, I, I'm, I'm growing in my spirit. This is Gnosticism. And this is part of what Paul is confronting when he, when he writes this letter. And so here they are. There's these, there's these new teachers that come to town and say, hey, you know what? Uh, Paul told you this, but he didn't tell you everything. Or there's, well, yeah, there's some truth in that, but here's the real truth. This happens today, right? You can go to a university and somebody can have all kinds of letters behind their name. And they can look at you and say, what's your parents, what's your pastor taught you? I mean, okay, as far as it goes, but, but, but look, you don't need to worry about this or this. And I know because I'm an expert. This happens to kids all the time. Um, now listen, let me, let me make sure you hear what I'm saying. Is there a place for young people to mature, and old people, to mature in our faith, to grow in our understanding of God. Of course there is. That's not adding. If somebody, if somebody teaches you in a way that your faith is dismantled, that's not maturity. Right? That, that's, that's them helping you deconstruct your faith so that nothing's left of it. I'm all for somebody helping you grow up. I'm not all for somebody tearing you so far down and then never rebuilding it with something stronger that wasn't there in the first place. That's what, what Paul's not anti-growth. Paul's not gonna say you shouldn't grow in your faith. Paul's gonna say, of course you should grow. We should grow in our knowledge of God. We should, we should be increasing in the fruit. You're gonna see that here this morning, right? All those things should be happening, but that's not abandoning the very thing that got you there in the first place, the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? So this is Paul's concern. Paul looks in and says, this is some of the stuff that's going on, and I want to make sure that I strengthen your faith in the midst of that, okay? So now, so, so, so that's why Paul wrote. Now, what's the main theme? The main theme is simply this, Christ is enough, right? The gospel is enough. The word of God is enough. You don't need some sort of extra experience. You don't, you don't need to add on some other requirements of eat this way or drink this way or do these certain things. No, Christ and the gospel are enough. In fact, you can't graduate. There's no 101 is the gospel and 401 is something beyond that, right? I think it's Tim Keller said the gospel is not just the ABCs, it's the A to Z, right? It's this, it's this you, you will return to that. You'll never unpack that. You'll, you'll, you'll be plumbing the depths of that for all eternity. In fact, in just a couple of weeks, we'll get to the, this, great, this great hymn to Christ, we might say, in chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What's Paul doing in verses 15 to 23? He's just lifting high the name of Jesus and saying, listen how sufficient he is. Christ is enough. He is, he's going to say in chapter 3, he's going to say he's all and all in all. 
right? He is the creator. He is, he is the one in whom he holds everything together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's preeminent. This is who Christ is, and he wants to lift him up to us and say, Christ is enough. So, so look, Paul's writing that and saying that because I think we can infer that the Colossians are feeling insecure, like they're new baby Christians, and maybe they're beginning to wonder, well, wait a second. I mean, we heard what we thought was the simple glory of the gospel, that, that we don't do anything, that Jesus Christ has done everything, and, and we call upon him, and, and we ask him to forgive us, and he forgives us and redeems us, and, he, and we're, we're born again, and we're citizens of the kingdom, and, and when this life is over, we'll be in heaven, and we are reconciled to the Father now and forever. But maybe there's more. Maybe, maybe Epaphras didn't get it quite right. Maybe there's something more. Maybe there's a higher knowledge, a deeper knowledge, something more we must do in order to really be kind of the advanced Christians. And boy, if there is all this extra, maybe it's not worth it. Maybe now that all this has been tacked on, we're wondering, should we even continue? And so here's what Paul wants to do. Paul, even right from the opening verses, wants to reassure them, hey, have you believed the gospel? Okay, then let's look at that. And if that's really true, then, then you, don't, you don't need all these other things that these new teachers are coming along and saying you must do, okay? So I'm trying to reassure you. So right from the opening words, Paul's words are gonna be words of reassurance, right? So how does he reassure them? Let me show you a few things. Number one, let's start, look at your Bibles. Chapter one, verse one, and by the way, you're gonna want your Bible during this time. My goal is that by the end of this, your book, your Bible is just gonna flop open to Colossians because you've been in there so much, right? So that's what happens to me when I preach through a book of the Bible. It's, it's always a joy to be like, oh, here we are again, right? Here we are again. We're just gonna pick up where we left off and just keep marching through. Chapter one, verse one, how does Paul reassure them? Let me say this, first way, just simply through his credentials. Okay, look, look what he says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Okay, so right there, he says, Paul, here's who I am, and I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Suppose you were sick. And suppose um, I came over to your house and you described to me your symptoms. And I listened and uh, I said, well, here's what you got. And I told you what your problem was, and I told you the medicine you should take. Kind of how we all acted during COVID, remember? Because we had an internet connection, and we became epidemiologists and medical doctors, right? Sorry, I'm, I'm jabbing here. Uh, so, uh, so, so Paul, so, so I come and I, I say that. Then now, maybe you'd say, who are you, right? Like, why are you telling, why are you diagnosing me and are, are you a doctor? No. No, but I do have an internet connection, and so I can go, whatever. I mean, whatever. I, I come to you and say, well, here, here, and you say, no. That, 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 like, why would I listen to you, Chris? Because why? You, that's a really valid thing for you to ask me because my credentials are my authority. Right? For me to have any authority, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a doctor, so for me to give you medical advice, you're, you're wise to go, maybe you shouldn't be doing this for me, Chris. Like maybe I should be actually be listening to the experts. Look what Paul does. Paul says, I'm an apostle. Now let's talk about that really quickly. 
when Paul uses, in some sense, there's two ways that the Bible can use the word apostle. The, the word apostle literally means sent one, one who is sent by another. Okay, so in that sense, we could say as Christians, we are all apostles in the generic sense that we are all sent by God. Paul is not using it like this. Paul is using it uh, in, its, in its sort of reference to his title. That is that he holds the office of apostle. And how do you attain the office of apostle? Well, he's going to tell us here in a moment, but one of the things you need to know is your Bible is written by either the apostles themselves, your New Testament, or by somebody closely associated with them, and it's their account. For example, the Gospel of Mark. It's very likely Mark wasn't an apostle, but Mark and Peter were associates. The Gospel of Luke, Luke's not an associate, but Luke and Paul were associates and traveled together. And so you're getting Paul's account, you're getting Luke's account in Acts and Luke, right? So, so they are people who have seen the risen Christ and been taught by the risen Christ and then give that teaching out. That's how they're sent. They're sent to give us authoritative teaching. What do we do here at Foothill Church? We simply open our Bibles and we teach to you what is handed down in Scripture from the apostles. This is the Word of God because it's the Word of the apostles that was taught to them by Jesus. That's the lineage of how it got from Jesus to them, to you, and me. Right? So, so Paul says, I'm that kind of apostle. I'm an apostle, but I'm not a self-styled apostle. I'm not an apostle that just sort of declared that over myself, right? And go on TV and there's people who are, you know, apostle, apostle this, apostle that, right? These are people who have decided this is my title. Or a church said, hey, we're going to make you an apostle. No, he doesn't say any of those things. No Jerusalem church or any other church said, Paul, you're an apostle. No, he says, I'm an apostle by the will of God. And you'll go to Acts chapter 9 and you'll read how is it that Paul became an apostle, right? Jesus Christ shows up on the road to Damascus, you know, knocks him off his horse. Paul, why are you persecuting me? He gets raised up. He gets taken over. He's blind. He finally sees Paul. You read in Galatians that he goes out into Arabia for three years. Very likely that's where Jesus taught him and sort of rearranged his theology from Judaism to Christianity where he finally un unraveled the mystery. It's like, oh, that's what I was learning all those years. That's where this all points to Jesus. He's that kind of apostle. And he's that kind of apostle because it's God's will for him. He's saying, look, I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, 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 Colossians, I want you to know this is coming from a place of authority. Remember, remember, here's, here's the Colossians are being led astray by false teachers. Okay, so, 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 so Paul comes in and says, let me, let me teach you. Well, listen, our generation is being led away by false teachers. This is always the problem in the local church. There is always a temptation to listen, oh, but this is deeper knowledge, this is higher knowledge, this is something more and better, right, that we should, we should graduate to. We have to decide all the time, who are we gonna listen to? Paul says, I'm an apostle, I speak by the will of God. Now, let me say as an aside, Paul's an apostle by the will of God. You are what you are by the will of God. I'm a pastor, by the way. I have no apostolic authority, right? But what I am, I am by the will of God. You're a plumber by the will of God. You're a physical therapist by the will of God. You're a teacher by the will of God. 
You, you are a doctor by the will of God. You're a lawyer by the will of God. Right? You're an HR specialist by the will of God. And on and on I could go. What we are, we are by God's will. Listen, Christian, that ought to be encouraging to you. That ought to help you know that, that you, you have what you do has dignity. I don't care if you find yourself like, my gosh, I'm changing a lot of diapers during the day. You're there by the will of God. And that means it has dignity. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, your labor is not in vain because it's by the will of God, right? That's the first thing. That's the way he encourages them. I want you to hear my credentials. And so now what I say is authoritative and I want to encourage you with this. So the second thing he says, he encourages them through their position. Here's what I mean. Look at verse two. He says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now let me just briefly just share with you, saints is not, you know, the Roman Catholic Church has its whole, you know, scheme of how somebody becomes a saint. That is simply not how the Bible uses the word saint. The Bible says that if you're in Christ, you are a saint. Why? Because Jesus Christ is perfectly holy. You are a holy one because of your position in Christ. But notice he says, you're a saint and faithful brethren in Christ at Colossae. Let's say it this way. He's saying to them, Colossians, you live in two kingdoms at the same time. You live in Christ and you live in Colossae. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you put your faith in him, then you are in Christ. Paul's going to say uh, later on that, man, you are, you are in Christ in God right? You are in this place of ultimate safety. So think of it this way. You are, you are living simultaneously in two geographies, the spiritual geography of your life in Christ, the physical geography of your life in Covina, in Glendora, in San Dimas, in Laverne, in Rancho Cucamonga, in Pasadena, right? That's where you are. Now, I could get up and move away from Glendora, but I can never move away from in Christ, right? My physical geography may change. My spiritual geography will never change because Jesus said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you, right? You are utterly secure because you live in these two kingdoms, right? They may, they may persecute you. They may take away your home. They may do all kinds of things against you, but you're safe in Christ. You are, <laughs> Paul says, hidden with Christ in God. How, how safe are we? Right, so Colossians, listen, if this is true of you, and you may be in Colossae, and there may be people coming to town, there may be teachers, and there may be surrounding pressure from the culture, but you are in Christ. Be encouraged. Be assured what you have is real. It's real, okay? Let's keep going. He says not just Paul's credentials, their position, but then he says their, their we could say their faith, their faith, hope, and love. Did you notice that? Look at verses, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now, let's stop there just for a second. Paul says, man, when we pray for you, we're so thankful for you, right? Paul, God would maybe remind him or Epaphras would bring it up. He's close to them. You know, he's with Paul now and saying, like, like, like I, I, I want to pray again for the people of Colossae. And Paul says, every time we pray, we're so thankful for you. We are so thankful for what we see in you and what we hear reported about you. Christian, by the way, one of the things I think we can grow in is uh, recognizing there's no such thing as a coincidence. There's no such thing for a Christian as just kind of a rant. If, if God brings to mind someone in your life, pray for them. I'm not saying you have to stop for three hours. I'm saying just 
Lord, I don't know why. You ever woken up in the night and somebody's on your mind? You ever walking around and just start thinking about something or someone? It's an invitation, Christian, the Spirit of God to call you and say, hey, pray. I don't know why I'm praying. I don't know what I'm praying for, right? God could put Chris Gannon on my heart. I don't know why I'm praying for him right now, but Lord, I pray for him. Help him, whatever he's going through, right? Like we should pray, but Paul says, I pray and I'm so thankful. And I'm thankful, did you notice this? Look at this. He says, because since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you of heaven. You ever heard these three together? Faith, hope, love, right? You, you, it's 1 Corinthians. You're going to see it in Ephesians. You see it all over the place. Let's say this. This is shorthand for Paul of what it means to be a Christian. If you were to say, Paul, distill down the Christian life for me and help me understand whether somebody is a Christian or not, Paul would say here, faith, hope, love. Are these three things present in your life? You know, the Bible helps us. First John is especially helpful in this way, but helps us by, by even helping us to evaluate our faith. Do we look at our life and go, I can see, I can see these things present. Let me, let me a good question, not to shake your confidence in what God has done, but simply to do what Paul says, to examine ourselves, see that we're in the faith, right? That one of the things we would do is ask ourselves some questions, like some diagnostic questions. Am I, am I truly a believer? You know why I say this? I, I say this because I cannot imagine anything more horrific than believing that you're a Christian and you're not. That, that, that would be the tragedy of all tragedies. For you to go, I assumed all my life that this was true about me. And in the end, it turned out not to be true. Now, does that just, you know, is it, is it every day you wake up in the morning and it's he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not, it's that God's love is that fickle? No, not at all. The Bible wants you to be utterly assured that if you're in Christ, you're safe, that you are there, that God's got you. But it also asks us to examine ourselves. And look and see, man, are these things true? So let me give you three questions. These are sort of three diagnostic questions you can ask yourself and say, man, is this true of me? And they, they revolve for Paul just around faith, hope, and love, okay? First thing is just simply this. Are you known by your faith in Christ? Okay, do you see this? Look at verse four. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, Paul says, what makes me so thankful for you, Epaphras came back and reported us they put their faith in Christ. Christ is their Lord. Christ is their Savior, right? They're, the genuine work of grace is recognized by faith. Notice, he never asks anybody. We're never asked to ponder whether we believe in God. Okay, that's, that's never the question unless it's preceded or followed up with what he says in verse 3, God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's the only way we want to say, listen, I believe in God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand? That is to say that you believe in God over against every other religion's claim to believe in God. I want to say this really clearly. Jewish people who do not accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah do not believe in the same God as we believe in. A Muslim person who worships God is not worshiping the same God. 
They are not the same. Because the Bible is going to say, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. They don't accept Jesus Christ. They reject Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to say, you don't love the Father because you don't love me. You claim to love God. You don't love him. You don't worship him. You're worshiping some other figment of your imagination, but not the biblical God. I don't say that so you'll be judgmental towards them. I say that so you pray for them. They're not sort of partly the way they're. They're not there at all. They reject the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because they reject the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so he says, man, I'm thankful for you because, because I see that you, you actually believe this. You believe in Christ. You believe in God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look, um, that, that, that's the only way that saying I believe in God works from a Christian perspective is if that God that you're speaking of is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? You will be known by your faith in Christ. That's the first question. Am I known that? Like, is, that, is, that, is that me? Second of all, am I known by love for fellow Christians? You see that? Look, keep going in verse four. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. In other words, one of the ways you're going to know, hey, that faith that I say I have in Jesus Christ is real, is it's going to produce love for other Christians. Do you as somebody who claims to have put your faith in Christ, do you love other brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you, do you know that's a test? In fact, let me show you it in really stark terms. Look at 1 John chapter 3. John gives us a few tests in the, in the book of 1 John, but he says this, we know. Okay, here's how you can know. Here's assurance. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, some of you, you see that last sentence and go, whew, okay, well, I'm, I don't hate my brother. Okay, you know, what, you know what hate is in Scripture in a context like this? It's not you have this visceral, burning hatred towards the person sitting next to you right now. I hope that's not true, right? But it's you don't care. You're apathetic. The opposite of love is, is not hate as we define it. The opposite of love is apathy. It's just apathy. I don't really care. And you know what? You'll never care for people you don't know. This is one reason why we're so adamant about sort of trying to push all of us together into relational networks, right? Like a growth group, serving, whatever. So because we, the more we know people, the more we love them biblically. Jesus says, by this will people know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That's gonna be what says to the world, oh wow, oh, they follow Jesus because they really genuinely love each other. That's the love test of your faith. And that love will transcend all kinds of boundaries. That love will transcend racial and ethnic boundaries. That love will transcend socioeconomic boundaries. That love will transcend political boundaries. See, so who do you love more? Do, do you love the brother or sister at church that differs with you politically? Or, or the person far from God, but boy, you're in lockstep on your politics. Do you love the person that, you know, you know they have the same skin color as you? 
or in the same socioeconomic status as you. Do you hear what Paul said? Man, I'm, I'm so thankful for you because your faith in Christ and your love for all the saints. All the saints. We don't have the, the right Christian, and it certainly isn't coming from a gospel impulse to sort of go, I pick and choose, right? I, 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 can't, I can't love that brother or sister because they differ with me on this or that. I'm not talking about Christian orthodoxy. I'm talking about things that we allow to transcend where the gospel would say, man, those things, those things should never cause division among God's people. Look, I, 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 I'm, I'm very firmly placed within a theological tribe, okay? I'd say it that way. That way. I, I know, like, the people I love to run with, what they believe, why they believe it. I love this tribe that I'm a part of. But it would be a huge mistake to say, unless you're in this little sub-tribe of Christianity, you're not my brother and sister. I remember visiting Lucas in Ireland. The very first time we met, he took us on tour around the city and kind of pointed some things out. And we'd go past churches, and these are churches that were very much not a part of his tribe. They were, they were gospel, but he said, look, I remember him literally saying one day, they, that church, I said, what about this church? You know what? Um, they're very different than we are, but and they, they preach the gospel, they're on the same team. I thought, that was so refreshing to hear, right? That we don't have to let these things divide us. He says, he says hey, Colossians, you have, one of, the, one of the ways you can know is I have love for all the saints. That's the second question. The third question of, man, am I, am I a Christian? What's the, what's the evidence I'm a Christian? He says, does your hope of heaven fuel your love on earth? Did you notice how he said it? Watch this. Look at verse 4 again. Okay, I'm thankful, verse 3. Why? Because we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Okay, good so far. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, now look what he just did. He basically said that love came from, was birthed out of, uh, was the fruit of hope. Hope in heaven. Right? You actually have this hope in heaven, and that's actually making you more loving people on earth. You ever heard somebody say um, that uh, it, it's possible to be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good? That's a catchy saying. It's so not biblical. Because here's Paul right here. And in other places, he's going to say in chapter 3, set your mind, like, like fix your mind on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Here he's saying, you have this kind of love for all the saints because of your hope in heaven. You understand that when I have a hope in the promises of God for me, it will actually, it doesn't make me less loving, it makes me more loving. It's going to free me from anxiety and fear and self-centeredness and anger and lust and pride because I hope in what's to come. How does that work? I read a sermon by John Piper this week on this, and this is so helpful. Here's a little excerpt from him talking about how, how does hope fuel love. He says, the problem with the church today is not that there are too many people who are passionately in love with heaven, right? Right? So, so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good? He says, name three. <laughs> Can you name anybody like this? 
It is not heavenly mindedness that hinders love. It is worldly mindedness that hinders love, even when it's disguised by a religious routine on the weekend. Ouch. Where is the person whose heart is so passionately in love with the promised glory of heaven that he feels like an exile and a sojourner on the earth? Where is the person who has so tasted the beauty of the age to come that the diamonds of the world look like baubles and the entertainment of the world is empty and the moral cause of the world are too small because they have no view to eternity. Where is this person? He is not in bondage to TV watching or eating or sleeping or drinking or partying or fishing or sailing or putzing around. He is a free man in a foreign land. And his one question is this, how can I maximize my enjoyment of God for all eternity while I am in exile on this earth? And his answer is always the same, by doing labors of love. There you go. That, that, that's what God is looking out for and saying, man, that's the kind of, of love that hope produces. I am, I am, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not so concerned about how I can, you know, wring everything out of this world. I'm more concerned about how I can wring everything out for the sake of Christ and how, how, how I can be a blessing. Remember he saved, when he, when he called Abraham, Abraham, I'm gonna bless you and you will be a blessing. My promise. Now, now, Abraham, here's the promise being held out for you. Now go and be a blessing. That's us, Christian. Does our hope of heaven fuel our love on earth? If our ultimate hope, if our confidence is in heaven's promises, I'll be loving, okay? All right, now let's get back to sort of the, the line that goes through this. We're asking the question, what, how is Paul... How is he encouraging them? How is he assuring them and reassuring them of their faith? Okay, so we've said so far, showing him his credentials. Here's who I am. I have authority to tell you this. He says their position, you're in Christ. He says their faith, hope, and love, I see the fruit of it. And the last thing, he says, you heard the gospel truth. Okay, look, look what he says in verse five. Um, of this, so, so look at verse five, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this, You have heard before in the word of truth the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It's bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf has made known to us your love in the Spirit. There's more we could say about this. So he's he's basically saying, hey, listen, what you heard from Epaphras was the truth. He was faithful. He gave to you the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And you believe that, okay? Now remember, Paul's never met the Colossians. They, he's only heard from Epaphras what's going on. Epaphras will go back to them. The false teachers come to town. They're smart guys with Bibles. They're articulate. They know how to make their case. And maybe they're starting to think maybe Epaphras didn't tell us everything. Maybe this gospel, there's more to this that we should be doing. Maybe we don't have a full account. And so Paul reassures them, you heard the word of truth, the gospel, right? That's what you heard. Now now notice, notice he says you heard it. It was a word. The gospel is the word of God, okay? I realize, again, really catchy sayings say things like, um, always preach the gospel. If absolutely necessary, use words. That's ridiculous. You must use words. The gospel 
It's a word. There's a lot of people, oh, someday, you know, the church is going to look very different and people aren't going to be preaching anymore. There's going to be sort of conversations happening. There will always be preaching. I will stake my reputation on this. Even if it's a remnant, there will be some people, someone who preach the gospel, who explain the gospel. And it's a word because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, which is the gospel. But notice what he says. He says, it's not just a word. He said, it's the word of, look at this, the truth. Not of truth, of the truth. What a massive claim. I am now getting you to bedrock truth. Like here's where your feet can find firmness. The gospel is the truth. When you heard the gospel, Colossians, when you heard the gospel, Foothill Church, if you heard it last week and you responded to that gospel and you're wondering, man, really, is it that simple? Or, or man, I, I, you know, my faith felt shaky this week and I'm not sure I'm really a Christian. Maybe that wasn't real after all. If you heard and believed the gospel, you believed the truth. You believe the bedrock truth of everything. This is why, by the way, another reason the gospel is offensive, not just because it calls people sinners, but because it claims to be the truth. Absolute. You understand this? A truth that was true 2,000 years ago and is true today. A truth that is true in America and Africa. A truth that, that, that crosses age boundaries and racial boundaries and time boundaries. It is transcultural, transtemporal, right? It, it never loses its relevance or power. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. That's the power of the gospel. Have you believed that? Have you believed, right? It's, it's not, I, well, I believe this part, but not that part, right? I, I, I like this. I've sort of deconstructed down into its constituent parts, and I'll accept this and reject that and accept that and reject that. No, it's, it's you believe this gospel, and it's all or nothing. Christ was delivered up for our transgressions. He was raised for our justification, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life, right? Do you believe this? That these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's the truth. That's the truth. That's bedrock truth. And this is, this is what Paul, and Paul says, look, when, when you heard this, now, and then he wants to go even further and say, okay, now you heard this. You heard the word of the truth. And then he says, now that truth is bearing fruit and increasing. Listen, let me just say this. If the word of God is, is taught and actually believed, here's my promise. It every single time will bear fruit and increase, Right? The, the DNA of the spiritual seed that plant is planted will begin to fruit out, come out in your life, and it'll be the same spiritual DNA. The DNA of that gospel is going to permeate. It's going to permeate every part of your life. That's what it does. And here's, here, that's what Paul's saying. It's bear, it bear, bear fruit and increasing in the world, he says, and in you. Right, so you're seeing this, Colossians. You actually can look around and go, look at what this gospel has done. Look at how it's transformed our lives. Look at how we relate to our wives and our husbands differently. Look at how we relate to our children. Look at how we relate to workplace. Look at how we relate to everything because this gospel that we believed is the truth and it's transformed everything. 
And he says, you're, you're the proof, guys. You, he says, but then he goes on, he says, you believed the grace of God in truth. There it is again, right? In fact, the bedrock of what you believed is was the grace of God. It wasn't you earning it. It wasn't you working your way up to God. It was that the God decided to save you. And the gospel, he says, do you notice that? He says the gospel came to you, right? It's, it's, all, it's its own force and power, if you will. They didn't bring it down from heaven. God brought it to them. Because the gospel isn't about how committed you are to God, it's how committed God is to your salvation and he's gonna save you, right? That's you understood the grace of God in truth. See, so here's what he's doing. In just these first eight verses, and he's gonna unpack this the rest of Colossians. Listen, Colossians, rest assured, Epaphras did well. He taught you well. He taught you the gospel and you heard it and you understood it and you learned and were growing your faith and it's producing faith, hope, and love and that fruit is increasing. It's real. It's genuine. If you believed, you're in Christ. That's the message of Colossians. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word and thank you for uh, the ways that it encourages us, Lord. I imagine that many of us we walk through our days and wonder, man, is this real? Did this really happen to me? It seems too good to be true, and sometimes we wonder if it is. And so like the Colossians, we find ourselves in that place of insecurity. And so I pray, God, I pray that through this, through the, not only verses 1 through 8, but through the rest of Colossians, we'd be reminded and reminded and reminded again, Christ is enough. The gospel is enough. It's not Christ plus something else, some other duty, some other obligation. It's Christ plus nothing. It's the preeminence of Christ. It's the lordship of Christ. It's the goodness of Christ. Lord, I pray. I pray that you'd fill us and, and help us, Lord. I pray, God, I pray for people here this morning. I pray, God, that, uh, that, that if they look at their lives and say, man, I... I walk myself through those three questions. Have I put my faith in Christ? Do I have love for all the saints? Is my love fueled by the hope of heaven? And they realize, man, I'm, I'm, I'm outside of Christ. I'm not in Christ. That today would be a day where they'd put their faith in Jesus. They put their faith where the only thing that can hold the weight of it and that, Jesus, you would be faithful to save them and their life would be hidden with Christ in God. Do that, I pray, this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.